We are going to continue our time of worship through the proclamation of His Word. The exaltation of Christ and the edification of the saints. Beginning in James chapter 1, verse 26, James writes, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our own God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing fine clothes, and say, you, sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you, stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored this poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak, and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let us pray. As we come before you this morning, Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive your word. Let us not show partiality, but let us extend the same mercy that has been extended to us. 
Lord, you are working on our behalf. You have paid the penalty that we could not pay. And you have become the propitiation for our sins so that we can stand in right relationship with you. Let us remember this always as we look upon those who would come into our congregation. Let them know that you are king and you are the one that we adore. And we all stand as equals, sinners before God. But let us come humbly before you, for you and you alone can justify. It is in Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. Love, the greatest of all the commandments. This is what our world so desperately needs. In a world often marred by division and strife, it's crucial to remember that love is not just an emotion. It's the very essence of our faith. We need an infusion of Christ's love into our lives. As followers of Christ, we are called to love one another unconditionally, just as our Savior loves us. God's heart is true and tender. His love knows no bounds. Jesus loved the sick, the liars, the poor, and the betrayers. Let us make our love like His, knowing no bounds. Love is not restricted based on income or race, addiction, or life choices. It has the power to heal wounds, bridge divides, and mend broken hearts. Love is patient. Love is kind. And love never fails. In this world where chaos may reign, let love be our guiding light, our source of strength, and our legacy as believers. For in love, we find the power to change the world. For in love, we find the power to change the world. As I dismiss our kids to go out to their classes, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles or in your digital devices and go to James chapter 1, verse 26 for me today. We're going to be going through verse 13 of chapter 2 as Pastor Bruce read up front for us. Today we're in our third week of the book of James. And as I look around, I want to thank you all for being here. And those of you who are tuning in online, the reason why I want to thank you is because, because I remember when I first started looking at the book of James, I thought, man, this is hard. And it is. The book of James is hard. As a matter of fact, when I first became a pastor, I remember being told, if you want people to stay in the seats, do not preach the book of James. Don't preach the book of James because really the book of James hits at the core of American Christianity where we're happy to go to church as long as I don't have to change. And I'm happy to be a Christian as long as I get to define what Christianity is. James punches that thinking right in the mouth. And as we begin to look at it, you know, I I would even say maybe James could be considered a drill sergeant for Christianity. A drill sergeant for Christianity. I remember back when I was in high school, a Navy recruiter had come to our school, and I started talking to him. 
Now, my, my dad was in the Navy. Uh, the greatest Navy recruitment tool of all time was on, had just got off the big screen by the name of Top Gun. And there was another movie out called Navy Seals that had just recently come out with Charlie Sheen. And all of these things were, were weighing on me as I'm talking to this Navy recruiter. And then my cousin was an Army Ranger, and he was off saving the world. And I thought, you know what? I could do that. That could be my life. Maybe that's for me. So I'm like, I'm going to go down to the recruiting office. As I went down to the recruiting office, I was waiting. And as I was waiting, they popped in a VHS of a Navy SEALs recruitment video. And if you don't know what a VHS is, kids, ask your parents. It's okay. But here's what happened. As I was sitting there watching the training for Navy SEALs, this is what I said. That is not for me, and I am out. That is not for me, and I am out. And the reason why, because if you know anything about Navy SEALs training, it is incredibly intense. As a matter of fact, the other day, I just happened to be reading about Navy SEALs. It's on a thing called Sandbox, uh, which allows you to send letters and packages to, to your, your kids, or, or my kids, overseas uh, in the military. And there was an article on there talking about the Navy SEALs. And the most recent data that came out back in June said what they do for any training class for the SEALs is they accept 880 trainees with the hope that 175 will make it through. Do you realize that is less than 20%? They hope that 20% make it. For the most part, they don't. They have a high attrition rate because the thing is, is hard thins the ranks. Thinking and doing hard is what I believe causes Marines who make it through their basic training and their thing to become the, the exemplification of their motto, which is semper fidelis. And does anybody know what that means? Always faithful. Always faithful. That's the reason I think why people and the pastor who sat down with me said, don't preach through the book of James because James is hard. A deeper look into this letter will sift out religious frauds from Christianity from that Christian crowd. And James, I think, is looking for that few good men and few good women to remain always faithful in both in word and in deed. Think about this. The first week we looked at 1, 1 through 18. And it talks about trials and temptations that we deal with and how faith, real faith, perseveres. Then we looked into 1, 19 through 25 last week and we talked about how real faith obeys the Word of God. And let's be honest, those first two weeks, they're not easy. They're not ones you look at and go, mm, I'm just so glad we're in James and I'm going to apply that to my life and everything's going to be going to be great. The tough words of James attack inauthentic faith. And I had somebody ask me this week on our, our logo, that, that statue that you kind of see here in the background, again, why we did the statue. Because it just has such an amazing resemblance to real, but it is not. And that's what we deal with. In our faith, we can make it look real, but a lot of times people are not because in James, what he's saying is, I'm going to challenge you to go all in. I'm going to challenge you to, what we talked about a couple weeks ago, burn the ships and, and put all your chips to the middle of the table or get out of the way of those who are willing to. And, and that's, that's hard. James says, there's no place for comfy, inauthentic Christianity within our ranks. And he challenges us with this hard question. What is authentic real faith? For you, what is authentic real faith? Well, after we're looking at 
how real faith perseveres and how real faith obeys this week, it's another tough one. It's love. Authentic, real faith loves. That video up front said, in love we find the power to change the world. And that's true. As God is love and as his followers, we display his love in our lives. So that's where James picks up at as we begin to look into this. So let's dive in. If your Bibles are open, James chapter 1, verse 26 and 27 is where we're going to start. Pastor Bruce read it already, but I'm going to read it for you again. It says, if anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. To, excuse me, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So let's lay that foundation again from when we very first started in the book. Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to these scattered Christians who had been persecuted and excommunicated by both the Romans as well as non-Christian Jews. So my guess is when he says, if anyone thinks he's religious, he's talking to them. They consider themselves religious. And my next guess is, is this. You in here also probably consider yourselves religious. So he's talking to us too. And in that, you might go, well, oh, no, no, I, I'm not religious because Christianity is about a relationship and not about religion, which is true. However, we need to define the word religion here for us to really see the fact that, yes, we are religious. See, in, in religion, it's a word today that doesn't stir up positive emotions. And, and the reason for it is this, because most religious people have a way they act and a way that they talk that tends to drive people away. They, they, they want to show how to live out their own personal convictions and try to make everyone else in the room agree with them. But the word religion here, it's not about personal convictions. The word religion here is actually a corporate sense. And in that corporate sense, it's participation in the worship of a well-defined religious community or organization. So Judaism, as James is writing tackles this but it also would define cult worship and the cult worship that took place even today it doesn't have to be a worship of one true god to be considered religion paganism could be considered it atheism could be considered it really i got to thinking about by definition we can even get into political parties being a religion by definition when you're saying the participation in the worship of a well-defined religious community or organization it falls in line so what James is actually referring to here when he says your religion is worthless or religion is useless is the fact that Christianity as a distinct body of believers is what he's talking about. And we say that for this reason, because when James says, if you're truly part of this religious group called Christianity, your lifestyle should show it. It should show it in the way that we persevere. It should show it in the way that we obey God. Our mouth is going to show it as we rein in our tongue. Our actions are going to show themselves as we take care of the needy. And you're not going to look like the world because the way you live and because of the way that you love. James says these are the marks of true, authentic religion. True and acceptable religion. That true, authentic, real faith. And James is going to give us a template by which to evaluate our lives and our faith with three marks. The three marks we just mentioned. And we need to ask ourselves, what does our true religion look like in our lives? Is it defined as a Christianity, as that distinct body of believers doing these things? So that's a question we have to do. 
What marks, what evaluation tools does James give us? First one is found in verse 26. It is controlled speech that displays a changed heart. Controlled speech that displays a changed heart. If anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he's deceiving himself. I told you James liked to just punch you right in the mouth. I would say that right here, he's not holding any punches back. Tell me what you really think, James. What do you think about my religion? I think it's useless. Oh, <laughs> thanks for being whole, heartwarming and kind to me. He already is talking about the tongue. He's already talked about it before. He's talking about this idea of being slow to speak, which we talked about last week. Then, as we're going to see next in the next couple of weeks, you're going to see James go deeper in, in chapter 3 about the tongue. But for right now, I want you to hear and feel what the Word of God is saying about this right here. One thing we need to keep in mind, something I think I failed to talk to you guys about the last two weeks, is James, being the brother of Jesus, heard a lot of things that Jesus had to say. He was there for the Sermon on the Mount. You'll see Sermon on the Mount things throughout this this book, this letter. You'll hear other things that Jesus said get repeated here. Now, the interesting thing to that is this. The Bible's very clear that Jesus' brothers and sisters did not believe in him until after the resurrection. So when you think about it that way, he may have been listening, but he wasn't taking it all in other than the seeds being planted. That might be a separate sermon for another day, but we can share the word and may not get a response until later. We see that here with James. James has heard this, and he remembers what Jesus said about this stuff coming out of the mouth. If you remember in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus says, for the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. And what he's saying here is our words are the overflow of what's inside of us. So the picture that James is trying to lay out is this. When we speak in a way that does not honor and glorify God, doesn't bring honor and glory to God, if we don't have that tight rein on our tongue, if we don't have a controlled speech, then this is an outward picture of our hearts. This is the picture that we see. What James is saying is if we don't have a tight rein on our tongue, our religion's a sham. If we don't have a tight rein on our tongue, tongue our, our religion literally is meaningless, or the word he uses here is useless. Useless. So here's the truth. When we speak, we tell the truth about what is in our hearts. So what comes out of our hearts what comes out of our mouths in evaluation what is that for you what is that for me you want to know what true religion is check your heart and what james is saying this tongue is a test of our true religion obviously the tongue is not an only indicator because we've heard lots of people say and make a profession and their lives don't actually act it out but it is a test and there is a major challenge in us for, for us today something James probably was not aware of at the time. Maybe he was, and I didn't know about it. But there's a day of text messaging now, and cell phones now, and emails, and most importantly, probably, social media. And in those avenues of communication, we live in a day that is bought into this idea, this cultural idea that if you have a thought, you should voice it. James is like, eh, wrong. But yet we do it, Anyway, because what we say is a reflection of our hearts. And I have friends that I grew up with in church that put some things on Facebook. I'm like, if that is a reflection of your heart, you need to check your heart. I was actually telling Peyton as we were driving yesterday, I said, the last time that I got into a Facebook war, if you want to call it that, was probably three, four years ago. 
And it was a, a thing about walls around a church, and they were trying to say we should let everybody in. And I just made the joking comment, saying, well, it's funny coming from a place that has walls with doors locked to make that comment. My mistake. Whoa. And I said, that will be the last time I will check my tongue and not say anything else anymore. Because it was a poor reflection of what was coming out from my inside and it created a storm that I did not want to have to weather. If our reflection of our heart is a true test of religion, what's our heart? What, what is what's coming out of our mouth? And I'm going to leave it at that, just to that question for right now, because we're going to get into more in chapter 3. So let's continue on in verse 27. It says this, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. And he says two things. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. To look after orphans and widows in their distress is one. To keep oneself unstained from the world is two. This is a powerful verse that has changed my life and has changed my household. Here's what you see. You see practical compassion and personal purity right next to each other. Practical compassion and personal purity right next to each other. And the reality is, the reason why this is important is because in our daily lives, we like to separate these two. We like one or the other. You can look at these two statements and see two political parties. I keep walking into the wind, so I apologize. But it feels really good. Look at the statements. Practical compassion. Which political party would that fall under? Our Democrat Party, the Social Justice Party. Personal Purity, who's the moral majority? The Republican Party, at least in name. Both of those are in name, but that is the, the driving platform that we have. And we tend to divide ourselves in this way when James is saying it's not one or the other, it's not an either or, it's a both and. We need both of these in our lives. What James is saying is that true religion brings them together, public compassion and personal purity side by side. You can't care deeply about the needs of the world and throw your morals aside. And you cannot stand deeply on the conservative truth that you hold to and lack concern with your life for the needs of the poor, for those who have needs around you. They have to come together. Personal purity, public practical compassion, according to James, this is what the God the Father accepts as pure and faultless. Did you hear that? This is what he accepts as pure and faultless. This brings us to the next two marks of this true and acceptable religion. The first one of the, to the two, mark number two, sacrificial care for those in need. To look after orphans and widows in their distress. The word look after. You know what it literally means? Actually, Bruce, when he read it, said what it means to visit, to visit someone, to seek someone out, not just to say hello, but to actually care for them, to provide for them. And, and it's a word in the scripture that God actually uses in Exodus. He uses it in Luke chapter 1. He uses it in Luke chapter 7, all to describe when God comes to us to take care of us. Luke chapter 1, you'll be reading it in like two months from today. As you're getting into when Jesus came. It's the description of coming to take care of the people. It's also mentioned in Acts 15. It's a word that we don't just check in, but we take ownership and responsibility and look after them. Here is what we need to understand. In that day, there were no insurance programs that if a 
husband or a father were to die, the family would be taken care of. There were no welfare programs that the government would take care of a widow or an orphan in the case of need. Those things weren't there. You know whose job it was? It's the job of the church. It was the job of the church, and, and James is laying it out there for him and for us to see. These people were in desperate need for help. And James is saying the orphans and widows are a picture of that need. Now, I'm going to get personal here for a second. And I'm going to step on your toes. As a matter of fact, I might do more than that. The gospel commandment is on full display here. And that gospel commandment is on full display at my house. I'm not patting myself on the back in any way, shape, or form because my house is a little crazy. My house, as a matter of fact, can be a little loud. But my house is also a lot awesome. My house has four kids from around the world. Has seven total. It was really crazy for the last month with camping back in town. But we were having a great time. And we have a great time. And I'll tell you, I would not change it for the world. Having four kids who once were orphans that I get to love on, that I get to play with, that I get to goof around with, that I get to invest in and tuck in on most nights of the week is probably the most amazing part of my life. And almost every time I do it, you know what I think? What if? It's a question I have often. What if? What if Christy and I had said no to God's call in our life? What if we had said, no, we can't do it. It's going to interrupt our schedule too much. What if we had not gone? What if God had not let us? I can guarantee our youngest one, Glory, would be dead. She'd be dead. I let that soak in far too often when I'm sitting there just staring at her. When she's sleeping or she has this habit now of getting up at like 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. And she wants to play, and none of us do. But I just look at her and I say, she wouldn't be here had God not led us to her. I look at my others, and I know about child trafficking and all that kind of stuff, and I always tend to go towards the worst. But it's entirely possible. It's entirely possible that all those kind of things would have happened. And they have scars on them already that I don't know where it came from and they can't tell me where they came from. But you see the trauma that's there. That's why this verse is important to me. And I see it and I say, you know, what if we would have said no? And we could have had all the excuses in the world. You know how many people tell Christy and I, well, I could never do that. Can I tell you that that is a lie? That you can do it. You can do it we just choose not to and i know that is straight out and you're like well hey you got your defenses all built up it says it right here it's our job it's not an option it's not hey this is one of the ways of christianity no it is the way of christianity to take care of the widows and the orphans in their distress to visit them to pour into them do you realize how many kids are in the foster care system right now it's like some four hundred thousand. And 100,000 of them are waiting to be adopted. Stop and think about that for just a second. My kids, had they not ever come home, would have not had anybody to tuck in or be tucked in, not anybody to pray with at night, not anybody to play with, not any place to spend their holidays at. And again, I'm not patting myself on the back. It's all God and His mercy, and He shows it by, by adopting me in the first place, and that's how it carries over. But let me tell you this. 
God is calling us as a church, as the church, as the universal church to be pouring into. How many churches are in the United States that are Bible-believing churches? My guess is it's well over 400,000. What if every church, just one person in every church, welfare system be done? The, the CYFD wouldn't have to exist. I think about that all the time. Yet we have our excuses and why we don't do that kind of thing. James says, you know, it's not an option. This isn't the way that we can show. It's the way we should show. It's an obligation for us to look after. And if you're not doing it, man, he says your religion is not acceptable before God and pure and faultless. That's a serious statement. There's people in need. We can't neglect them. And think about even the way he says this. He says, our religion before God the Father. Who? God the Father is this. He is the Father. The Bible tells us he's the Father to the fatherless. He shows his provisions for the needy. And how does he do that, though? Have you ever stopped and thought about how God the Father shows that? Who are his hands and feet? I believe that would be right here. Through his people's real, true, authentic, not just listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says kind of religion. Care for, look after the orphans and widows. Otherwise, your religion is not acceptable before God. We're called to sacrificially care for those in need. That's the second mark that he talks about. Third mark, control speech, sacrificial care. Third one is clear separation. True, authentic religion clearly separates itself from the ways of the world. Now this one, this one is where it gets interesting to me. It gets interesting because of this. We tend to think when it says to keep oneself unstained from the world means, well, okay, I just need to be pure and quit mixing myself with the world's filth in our lives, which it does mean that, but it doesn't stop there. We tend to stop there because the chapter stops there. We think that somehow these letters were written in chapters and verses. They were not. We did that later on down the road. This was a solid letter that went straight. And it went straight from this being unstained. And he continues on throughout the letter talking about this fallen world system that we as a church tend to hitch ourselves to. We, we, we tend to fall in line with it. And one of the ways we do it is exhibit A that he's talking about here in 2, 1 through 13. He says, we've bought into the world system when it comes to favoritism. Partiality, as Pastor Bruce read. The church was doing exactly what the world had done, honoring the rich and neglecting the poor, judging by outside appearances, prejudging by what we see. Did you know the Latin word for prejudging is where we get our word prejudice? We prejudge. We look at the outside. And in this, he's talking more about money, but it's not just about money, is it? I grew up in a conservative Baptist church. And I will tell you, when somebody walked into that conservative Baptist church, how did you know what a Christian was supposed to be? Just asking you. Because some of you grew up in the same type of conservative Baptist church that I did. You didn't know by asking them. You knew by looking at them. Oh, hair's too long for that guy. Hair's too short for that woman. Obviously not a Christian. What about Clothing. Well, they're not dressed and giving God their best. We had this discussion in Romans last week in our small group. Obviously, you're not giving God their best, so they must not be a Christian. What do you drove? You can't drive that and be a Christian. You can't 
have that expensive or that poor. You have to fall right in the middle on what it is, where you live, what kind of house you're in, what kind of education you have, where you got that education. Were you public schooled or homeschooled? Obviously not a Christian. These are the prejudgments we laid out there. Just the overall appearance. I'll tell you a story about a guy named Lonnie. Lonnie was in my church in Phoenix. Lonnie was an ex-Hells Angel member. He was a biker. He was tattooed from head to toe, and I meant it. Like all the way up the neck, around the ears, all the thing. He was tattooed from head to toe. Lonnie had a yellow color to him because he'd gotten some things from doing drugs and all the kind of stuff like that. From all outward appearances, Lonnie was not a believer. But I will tell you this. Lonnie was probably the strongest believer I'd ever met up to that point in time in my life. Lonnie carried three nails in his pocket at all times. The reason why is because he knew when they poked him and caused any sort of discomfort in his life, he knew that Jesus did much more than that with three nails for him. Didn't matter if it tore his clothes, because his clothes didn't matter. He needed the reminder of what Jesus did for him. Another thing, if you know anything about the hell's angels, you don't just get out of the hell's angels. You give up everything. He was the first person I had ever met that had given up literally everything for Christ. All of his things, all of his money, all of his Harleys, everything he gave up for Christ. He showed up every Sunday. He was faithful. But I'll tell you what, he didn't look like anybody else in the entire congregation because being tattooed from head to toe in the early 90s, late 80s was not normal. It was a sign of being a thug, being a whatever. But I'll tell you what, from outward appearances, you may not have known it, but from talking to him and hearing his testimony, and he had no problem sharing it, he always carried a get-out-of-hell-free card in his back pocket to share with anybody who would listen. That was Lonnie. But how often do we, in our growing up thinking, look at somebody from the outside, form an opinion based on limited facts? Not that we do that anymore. But man, back when I was a kid, that was a, that was a problem. We made our minds up as who is important to who is not. And we definitely don't want to be confused with actual facts, so we don't even talk to them about it. The whole point of James 2, 1 through 13 is to show that this is a faulty way of thinking. That's the, the whole point of it. And to challenge us to think different, to have a clear separation from the way that we live and think compared to the world. So here's what James does. He says in 2, 1, he lays out the truth. In 2, 2 through 4, he gives us an illustration of that truth. And then he explains how living outside of this truth is not consistent with authentic, real Christian faith. And as any good speaker would do, he ends with a challenge to tell us to do what's right. So James 2, 1, let's go to it real quick. It says, my brothers and sisters, so you know he's talking to the Christians here, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord and Jesus Christ. They have the right theology. Their faith is in the glorious Lord and Jesus Christ. In word, they have their priorities straight because their priorities means all glory to God. But there's a little phrase in the middle that catches everybody off guard. You know what it was? Don't show favoritism. Don't show favoritism. Houston, we have ourselves a problem. Here's your faith, here's your actions, and they're not jiving. They're not jiving. Your faith is in God and you follow Him, but your actions show that you're following this system of the world. You're showing partiality. You're having these prejudices of these preconceived ideas built on outward appearance. But faith and favoritism, you know what? They're not compatible. You can't do that. So he gives them an illustration. And he lays this illustration out in verses 2 through 4. And it is still an illustration very relatable today. It says this, For if someone comes into your meeting, into your church gathering, 
wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes it also comes in if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say sit here in a good place and yet you look at the poor person and say stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool haven't you made distinctions among yourselves become judges with evil thoughts so this is the image that james is laying out he says church is about to start and two people come walking in a rich one and a poor one the one you assume has power and influence because they are rich and the rich then especially had power and influence but we still assume that even today the funny thing is and i'm just going to pause on this for a second and we'll see it actually later in, in the verse the rich didn't go to church because they're the ones that were persecuting the church. They didn't think they needed God because they had everything they needed in their own hands, in their own pockets. Again, still applicable today. But these guys were going out of their way to honor these people anyway. And the ones who basically had nothing, they lacked influence, they didn't, they didn't care about. So the usher at the back door, he has a choice. He says, where am I going to sit you? Where, where are you going to sit at? And we do it as well. Are they going to sit by you? Are they going to sit in a better seat than you? Or are they going to stand in the corner or on the floor by my feet? I mean, that's a, that's a pretty big deal to say, hey, you're going to sit here by my feet. Because you've got to remember back in those days, feet were not great. They're still gross today, but they're way grosser then. Because you knew what you walked on and walked through to get to church that day. And you're like, hey, sit down here by my feet, these nasty things down here, because that's how good you are. In this illustration, James says, you know what? Your natural choice is going to be to give the rich man the seat of honor and tell the poor man to stay out of the way and not distract anybody. That's where we're at. And the seating in church is important, right? I mean, I'll I'll go back to my, my old growing up, and you probably could too. Did you ever sit in somebody's seat by accident? Whoa. That's my seat. You know where that actually comes from? I'm not sure if you've ever done this before. A couple years ago, we went to Boston to see my uh, sister get married. And uh, while there, um, we went to the Old North Church, the Paul Revere, you know, one if by land, two if by sea. I might get that backwards. I don't know. I'm not, not into that stuff anymore. We went in there, and if you go inside, the church is actually set up in boxes. They actually have walls set up so there'd be a boxes here 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 all the way around and each person pays to have a family box so it is truly your seat and the person who pays more gets to sit closer to me that is the way it was set up that is the way that it carried over into this idea of having the seat of honor having the seat that is closest to the pulpit having the best view having be the one i know people that used to race to church back when church was like the online or not just online but on tv they would want to sit so they could be right here so the camera saw them because they wanted to have the place of honor to say i am here as a matter of fact i've read things about some of the big mega churches they actually have specific people they'll put there because they get all And they do all the talking back and things like that. So they actually do that on purpose so people online are like, oh, that church is really energetic. That, that's the thinking. We have all of this. So in it, 
we start looking. That's right. So you get the amen. Bob, you can come sit up here in the front. Um, <laughs> the, the thinking in it was, how can I get this and get them all going and, and make it happen? And the rich person you want up front because you want them to have that seat. And the other person you don't want because, oh, they might make our church look bad. Let me be clear to this. This isn't about being rich or poor either. This is about how we approach the rich and poor. And why? What is the motive that is affecting the behavior? It's the motive that is driven by the world's system. Why? Because we can benefit. There are benefits to be for being in relationship with a rich and powerful person, isn't there? How many churches are influenced by money? How many churches are influenced by people who have money? Go back to your growing up in the church if you did. If you grew up in the church... Who were the people that were in charge? Who were the people that were the head of the deacons and the elders and all of those kind of things like that? Didn't it seem to be the people who had the most power and influence financially? When you think about church buildings, who are they geared to? I mean, our, our trustees met last week about starting a building fund, about what that's going to look like for us because we have two more years in here and maybe sooner. We find a place and we start doing that. What's that? How are we going to build our church? When you think about church programs, who are they geared to? Honest evaluation is people with money. The, the rich. The church caters to them because of the potential benefits, right? I mean, there's a story about old life-saving station. We've used it before in here, but it's the whole idea that life-saving stations were popping up or shipwrecks were always at and they'd build these buildings to house people with showers and stuff like that but then became more of a clubhouse where people hung out at and they didn't want the dirty people coming in anymore so they built a second life-saving station a little bit further down and that's why there's so many clubhouses up and down the east coast now because they just didn't want to have the dirty people inside how often are we geared towards that we're geared towards hey the rich can sit here but the lesser you're over there and please don't touch anything while you're there james couldn't be any clearer if this is the way the church is acting, you are stained by the world, he says. You're stained by the world, and it needs to stop. There is no class distinction in religion, that distinct body of believers. Not by color, not by politics, not by finances, not by clothing, or any other outward appearance. So this is what James says next, as he slows down and breaks down it real nice and plain. He says, here is the reason that favoritism is a problem. Listen, my dear brothers, in verse 5. My dear brothers and sisters... Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, and said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery but you murder, you are a law breaker. Now I said, here's the reason that favoritism is a problem. But it actually gives three reasons. Those three reasons are this. A theological reason, based on who God is. A logical reason, and a biblical reason. So let's look at the theological reason. Found in verse 5. He says, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be faith?" are rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him. Theological reason is, God didn't show partiality, so you shouldn't either. Plain and simple. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, Paul actually expands on this. Let me read it for you. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring nothing what is viewed, bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. When you look at that verse, do you see yourself? Reason number two, the logical reason. James asked two rhetorical questions in verses six and seven. The rich oppress you, dragging you to court, blaspheming the name of Jesus. Why do you show them favoritism? What is it that you, draws you to show them favoritism and shaft the poor in the process? And they're great questions. Great questions, and the answer makes no sense. Why do you cater to the ones who want to destroy you? We can still ask that question today. Why is the church bowing down to the world's ways and so many things when the world just wants to destroy them? It's a logical reason. Then he brings up a biblical reason. It says this, if you fulfill the royal law, love your neighbors as yourself, then you'll do well. Love your neighbor as yourself. You've probably heard that a time or two. But the readers, when they got it, it was actually from the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 19, um, 18 is where they would know it from. And if you're uh, in one of our connection groups is going through the book of Leviticus, you might have heard it there too. But for most of us, we actually heard from the mouth of Jesus. The mouth of Jesus, again, remember how James heard that? He uses a lot of it. Matthew 19, 19. Jesus says these exact things. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it's actually the basis for the golden rule found in Matthew seven twelve in the Sermon on the Mount. To treat others as you want to be treated. Jesus actually says, it's the second part of the great commandment which is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul talks about it in Romans 13, 9. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment. What is it? Love your neighbor as yourself. I believe we call it a mic drop. Boom. There, he's laying it out there. The biblical reason why we don't show favoritism is because faith loves Faith loves. Real, authentic faith loves. If you break this law, you break all of them. If you break other laws, you break this one. Favoritism caused us to love unequally. So we've got to stop. It's got to go. We've got to stop hitching ourselves to the world system. Then he wraps up in 12 and 13. And he says these words, Speak and act as those who are being judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He says, hey, I want you to let the word be your standard, not the words of the world. You know how long you have been conditioned by the words of the world on how we're supposed to love? Far too long. We should be listening to the word of God and let it be our standard. Hear what God has to say and do it instead. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as God has loved you. And be careful. Be careful in that statement because sometimes we like to love our neighbor when we get to pick the neighborhood. We're called and challenged by James to change our attitude towards not just the neighbors we pick, but all others, as well as our action towards all others. So as we wrap up, simple challenge. Simple challenge goes back to last week. Be doers of the word. 
Be doers of the word. Let scripture, not your habits and desires, be your standard. And let love, not your preconceptions, be your law. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are. And thanks for the book of James, even though it hurts, even though it's hard, even though it challenges us in ways that, well, personally, I don't want to be challenged. But God, even as we said, James isn't about comfortable, cushy, inauthentic Christian faith. It's about our faith in you changing us to change this world. To challenging us to be your hands and feet. To challenging us to to be who you want us to be. God, I pray that's the case. I pray that you're working in our hearts and I pray that you're working in our minds. And even as it said last week, be slow to speak, be, be quick to listen, not bring our defenses up. I pray today that our defenses didn't build up and say, well, that's wrong. When we look at Scripture, we, we take it for what it is and we look how we can apply it to our lives. God, I pray whoever you're challenging and however you're challenging them to help them take that next step as we continue to burn the ships and move forward for your mission to reach this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray it in your name. Amen.